Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us today from wherever you are. Whether you attend one of our Denver locations or listen online, our hope is to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. And if you'd like to financially support our community and beyond as we set aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Thank you for joining us today. Before we get to this week's podcast, we want to take a brief moment to talk a little bit about giving. June 30th marks the end of our fiscal year. It's a time for us to pause, reflect in gratitude, and celebrate what your generosity has accomplished over the past year as we look forward in hopeful anticipation to the year ahead. Thank you for all you've given in your time, talent, and finances to bring about the healing work that God has entrusted to us. Now, in the spirit of our deeply held values of authenticity and transparency, we want to share with you all that we are behind our expected giving for the year. Know that all we do in and through Denver Community Church is only made possible by the financial support of those who call DCC home. To all those who have given faithfully over the past weeks, months, and years, thank you for entrusting us and partnering with us in this vital work. And if you call DCC home but have not yet considered giving financially, we ask that you would prayerfully discern joining us in supporting the healing work to which we are called. You can learn more about how we steward our finances by emailing us at info at denverchurch.org. And if you'd like to begin giving right now, you can start the process by texting Denver Church to 77977. Again, thank you for all that you give. Good morning. Oh, good morning. How are you doing? Good. My name is Amanda Lum, and I am the teaching and adult ministries pastor on staff. It's great to be here with you this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 5. If you do not have a Bible, there's a Bible beneath the seat in front of you, and you are welcome to use that Bible and even take that Bible with you if you'd like. Uh, If you've been with us in this season of teaching, you know that we've been slowly making our way through the gospel of Luke, very slowly. (laughs) And this morning, or the past few weeks, we've looked at some of the miraculous like healings and the miracles that kind of defined Jesus' ministry. And this morning, we're going to look at another miraculous healing. And each of these encounters that people have with Jesus, they still hold an invitation for our lives today. And so this morning, I think the story that we're going to look at and study, I think this story is actually inviting us to consider a few things. First, community, then authority. And then finally, what happens when we find ourselves at the feet of Jesus? So I'm excited to jump in to study this story with you this morning. So let's do that. We'll begin reading in verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. 
When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. So this is a pretty amazing story. A lot happens in just nine short verses. See, at first glance, this story appears to be about a man who has an encounter with Jesus and who is healed. But really, this story is about several people's encounter with Jesus. It's almost like Luke is telling a story inside another story. So this morning, we're going to unpack some of these encounters, these stories, um, and these, these times that they spend with Jesus. And the first story I want to look at is the story of the man and his friends. It's actually these characters in the story that I felt myself so drawn to in the past few weeks as I've studied these verses and prepared for this morning. See, we don't know much about the man and his friends. We're told that Jesus has been traveling um, from town to town, and he's teaching and performing miracles. Now, by this point, Jesus has built quite the reputation for himself. He's famous. He's famous for what he's, not just what he's saying, but what he is doing for people. See, in the chapters, or the verses just before this chapter, we're told that Jesus, um, that news has spread about Jesus, and that people are coming to Jesus to hear his teachings and to be healed. People are coming to Jesus, longing and hoping to be healed, longing for restoration, longing to be freed from the things that are making them sick. It's important to know that in the ancient world, that, that sickness was actually connected to sin. In the ancient world, in the Jewish mind, it was believed that any ailment was a consequence of someone's sin. In certain traditions, it was even believed that if you were not whole physically, then surely you were not whole spiritually. So many assumed that if you were not whole physically, that it was your sin that was causing this. And because of that assumption, this also meant that if you were sick, you also held some pretty harsh social realities as well. You were pushed out, pushed aside, not seen as whole, but being punished almost. It's important to know that for these stories, these miracles that we read about in the gospel. This is the context, right? So people are not just coming to Jesus hoping that they would be healed. They're coming to Jesus longing for restoration in every way. They want to be free from the sin that they assume and believe is causing these realities for them. They think to themselves, oh, if I could just get close to Jesus, then maybe everything will be different. Maybe, just maybe, I could be healed and whole. And this appears to be what the man and his friends think as well. If we can just get our friend in front of Jesus, then maybe he can be healed. But again, we don't know much about the man or his friends. In fact, we're told very little. 
For a character that seems to be pretty central to this story, we're not told very much about him. What we know about the man is that he's paralyzed, and we also know that his friends go to great lengths to get their friend in front of Jesus. Mark's gospel tells us that it's four of the man's friends who carry him to the house where Jesus is. Mark also tells us that when they get on the roof, they have to dig a hole through the roof to lower their friend down to Jesus. We also know because of this assumption that sin was connected to illness, any ailment was connected to sin, we also know that this man likely faced some pretty harsh social realities as well. That life was likely very difficult. But that's really all we know. We don't know, was this man born paralyzed or did something happen in his life that caused him to be? We don't even know the man's name. The story who this is about, we don't even know his name. And with so little shared about who the man is and about his friends, well, this just leaves us room to get curious. This leaves us room and invites us to wonder. And this is what I've been doing over the past few weeks. I've wondered about this man's life. What was his life like? How long had he hoped for healing? How many conversations did he have with these same friends about his longing and his ache to be restored and whole? How many remedies had the man tried? How many people had he seen? I wonder when his man and his friends heard about Jesus, was the man hopeful or was he skeptical? After so many years of hoping and longing for something that just wasn't coming, Did he think, oh, this is just another lead to chase down that's going to turn up empty and disappointing? I wonder whose hope carried this man to Jesus. Was it his hope and longing, or was it the hope and longing of his friends? See, when they heard about Jesus, were they excited about it, hopeful, or was it just like, I guess I need to try this, right? Whose hope carried this man to Jesus? These are some of the questions that were stirring in me the past few weeks that I was getting curious about with this man's life. They're questions of hope. And I realized hope is a pretty tricky thing, isn't it? There's like one person nodding. Okay, we're gonna make it. (laughs) Hope is tricky. And it's tricky because we hear a lot about hope, don't we? especially in the church. We're invited to cling to hope, to embody hope, to hope that the kingdom is coming every day. We're asked to hope for healing, for, re- uh, for reconciliation, for redemption, to hope for justice and for peace. And hope is something that we actually desperately need, don't we? Y'all, I don't wanna know what this world would be like to live in this world without hope. Hope that something better is coming. We need to, in the face of one tragedy after another, hold on to hope that God is working her goodness into this broken world, don't we? But hope is tricky because this hope that we desperately need, it's also very difficult to hold at times, isn't it? This hope that we need to have in order to move forward, well, it's easier said than done, isn't it? See, hope is difficult. 
Hope is courageous. In fact, hoping for something in the face of disappointment, that's the most courageous thing I have ever done in my life. Because when we're holding our hurts, our heartaches, our losses, our disappointments that the world so frequently offers us, well, when someone tells us to hope for something that's just out of reach, it can feel like salt in a wound. Hope is tricky. My gosh, it's so tricky. Because at times it can feel very easy to hope for something. And then in the next minute it can feel almost impossible to hope for something. At times, hope can be reassuring, and at other times, it can be so painful. Hope is tricky. And if I've learned anything about hope in my life, it's that hope is not instant. It's cultivated. That hope is a discipline, something that we give ourselves over to. It's something that we learn, that we practice, And hope is something that cannot be cultivated alone, in isolation. No, we actually need the support and care of a community to help us give ourselves over to this discipline of hope. See, several years back, my family um, and I, we, we faced the deepest grief and disappointments that we had ever known. We stumbled through years soaked in pain, longing for something that after so long just felt impossible, after so many disappointments felt impossible. We spent years praying and begging for a different story, hoping for resurrection. And I have to say, after so many years of being disappointed, hope felt distant. We even found ourselves asking, friends, what have we done to deserve this? Why are we being punished? Have we not been faithful servants? We'd hoped for so long that hope started to feel impossible. It felt too risky, too scary to keep hoping for something that kept turning up empty. And I remember sitting with my best friend around her kitchen table and finally admitting this after feeling it for so long. I just told her, you know what? I don't think I can hope for this anymore. It's too painful. It's too hard. It hurts too much. And there was this really long, like full silence between us. And as we shared this silence together, I expected her to give me some sort of pep talk about hope and faith. But she didn't do that. She just kind of scooted her chair closer to mine. She put her arm around me and said, that makes sense. It makes sense to me that it's absolutely terrifying for you to hope anymore for this. After so much heartache, it's okay that that's where you are. But then what she said next changed everything. She held me really close and said, but I'm not done hoping for you yet. We're not done hoping for you yet. You can let my hope carry the weight of this heartache for just a little bit. You can let my hope be enough until you are ready to hope again. Oh, 
It's years later, you guys, I got tears in my eyes because I can still feel the weight that was taken off of me in that moment. Because hope truly did feel excruciating. It felt so painful. And it felt like I couldn't do it anymore. But you know what I felt like I could do? In that moment, I could let her hope for me. And that her hope could be enough just for that moment. See, I wonder, did the man in this story, did he feel the same way? After so much hurt, after so much pain, after being pushed aside, cast out, seeking so many different healings and remedies, did he feel like, I don't know if I can do this anymore? Was it his hope that carried him to Jesus, or was it the hope and the faith of his friends? We're not going to know the answer to that. I realize that. I can't give you that answer this morning. But what I can say is, either way, the friends play a crucial role in this man's healing. Let's recap their vital role in this story. They hear about Jesus and the extraordinary things that are happening in his presence. And they carry their friend to the house where Jesus is. Now, they encounter this massive crowd of people. It's so big, they can't even try to find one little way to get into this house. But instead of turning around and giving up, they find their way onto the roof of this house. And Mark tells us that they dig a hole through the roof of a house, a hole big enough to lower their friend down to Jesus. This is no small thing. Like, it's easy for us to read stories like this in scripture, I think, and be like, right, right, right. Okay, okay, okay. So they brought this man to the house. Okay, they were on the roof. That makes sense. Oh, totally, they dug a hole. Like, we can just go like, yeah, that, to-. no. I mean, a traditional home was made up of stone walls that was then covered by wooden beams that was then packed on top with sticks and mud, sticks and mud that had been baking in the sun for who knows how long. This wasn't like a five-minute job, which begs the question, what were the people in the house thinking? (laughs) Like, we're told that there's this massive crowd of people, and they're listening to Jesus teach. This had to have been so distracting. I mean, part of me wanted to have some, like, super loud noises happening right now to be like, see how distracting that was? Like, did Jesus, was he just, like, super casual about it? Was like, I'll just talk louder. Like, while the people are like, what is happening? I mean, they showed up in front of Jesus expecting kind of the extraordinary, right? But could any of them have guessed that sticks and mud were about to fall from the ceiling? Like, I imagine people just sitting there being like, what's going on? Does anyone know what's going on? Okay, we can move on from that scene. But that's, I mean, it's just fascinating. It's really actually very inspiring what these friends do to get their friend in front of Jesus. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful act of faith, a beautiful act of love for their friends. They lower their friend down to the care and compassion of Jesus. We're told that he is right in front of Jesus. And Jesus acknowledges the beautiful act of faith that they just showed. See, and we see this story of the man being healed 
in three of the four Gospels. We see it also in Mark and Matthew. And while each account shares some varying details about this man's healing, all of them record the same thing when the man is placed before Jesus. They say this. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. All three gospels say this. Do you catch it? When Jesus saw their faith, it is the act of faith by the friends that Jesus names and acknowledges before he forgives the man. It is their act of love that Jesus names before he forgives the man. He doesn't look at the man and say, you, um, your faith has brought you here and you are forgiven. No, I see Jesus looking up at the roof. I see you. You have done a beautiful thing. Your sins are forgiven. All three gospels say this, which for me begs the question, what role does community play in our healing? What role does relationship, the people who surround us, what role do they play in our own journey towards wholeness and restoration and towards healing? An essential one. Friends, we are not meant to do this life alone. Actually, we are hardwired, created for connection and for relationship, real relationship. We need people who we can journey with in this life. We need people who, will, who we can share our highs and lows with. People who will challenge us and help us grow and learn. People who will help us cultivate hope, give ourselves over to the discipline of hope. We need people. Sometimes we need others to bring us to the feet of Jesus so that we can be healed. Community, I think, plays an essential, a vital role in our healing. I know because I've experienced it. Because as I look back on my, my, my conversation with my best friend years ago, I am so deeply grateful for a friend who was willing to carry me on her hope to the feet of Jesus because I am confident today that I never would have made it there if it wasn't for her. My family would not have made it there. We need people. We need people who will laugh with us and cry with us, who will celebrate with us, and who will grieve alongside us because this place can be really tough. We need people who will bring us to the feet of Jesus so that we can be restored. Sometimes we need to be those who will help bring others to the feet of Jesus so they can be restored. See, this first story in Luke chapter 5 is about a man and his friends and about their encounter with Jesus. It's a story about community and about the role that community plays in our healing. But remember, Luke is telling a story inside a story. And so if the first story is about community, then the second story is about authority. The, one of the first details that Luke shares in this story is that the religious elite have shown up. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were there. Now, Luke is pretty specific about this. 
He says that they've come from every village in Galilee and that they've traveled long distances to see about this man, Jesus. Now, this is the first time we see the religious authorities show up in Luke's gospel. A new character enters the narrative, and this should catch our attention. At least I think Luke wants it to catch our attention because he mentions it immediately. They're here. See, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who were commonly known as the scribes, they are the experts of the faith. They're here to make sure that Jesus isn't crossing a line. They are the religious authorities of the day. See, the Pharisees, their main concern was keeping the nation of Israel faithful to God. And they did this by ensuring that the laws that God had given to Moses were kept. And they made sure that the laws weren't violated by creating a system of traditions that functioned somewhat like a fence around the... Ooh, that was those loud noises that we probably would have... The law that they created, this tradition, it acted kind of like a fence or a guard around the law to make sure that it was kept. Keep the people faithful to God. The scribes, they studied the law and they helped develop the tradition. They really are the experts of the faith. They're there and they're watching Jesus. So they're there because they want to make sure Jesus isn't crossing a line. Now, Jesus is teaching Right? And the Pharisees and the scribes, they're among the crowd of people who would have been disturbed by the commotion on the roof. They would see the dust and the mud and the sticks start coming down from the roof. They would see this man lowered down in front of Jesus. And surely everyone in the crowd would have expected Jesus to heal this man. Remember, he's built a reputation for himself. Everyone there is like, oh, he's going to heal him. But surprise, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't heal the man physically. Instead, he talks about forgiving the man of his sins. Now, this is the point in the room where things get a little awkward. They're like, oh, oh. Like someone turns to the person next to them like, did, you, did he just say that he forgives him? Like there's someone in the back shouting, what did he say? Like this is, it's a little tension filled because immediately this would have been unsettling for the religious leaders. They're very uncomfortable with what was just said. See, we're even told that Luke tells us they're thinking in their hearts, that they're thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a line and you just crossed it. Now, the reason, this is a very big deal. I think we don't hear a lot about blasphemy now, but this is a big deal. This man is claiming to do what only God can do. They're looking at him saying, who do you think you are? Only God can forgive sins. How dare you claim to do what only God can do? This accusation of blasphemy, this is one that we'll see throughout Jesus's ministry from the religious leaders. And it's actually one that would cause him to be arrested and eventually sentenced to die on the cross. This is a big deal. And Jesus says that, uh, or Luke tells us that Jesus knows exactly what's going on in their hearts. He can see what they're thinking, and then Jesus calls them out. He calls them out in the crowd. Imagine yourself in this room. Things got a little awkward. 
And now Jesus is like, hey, here's the deal. Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? What's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or get up? What's easier? He calls out the powers and the authorities in the room and he challenges them. He challenges their authority. He challenges their power. What did this room feel like? Is this where someone says, awkward, this is awkward. Like what is that? what's gonna happen, right? People are on the edge of their seats because Jesus is challenging the authorities, the powers in the room. And he says to them, I want you to know that I have been given the authority on earth to forgive sins. God has given me the authority to do that. And that line right there, that seems to be the point that Luke is trying to make in telling this story. That Jesus has the authority, the same authority that God has to forgive sins here on earth. This story appears to be for Luke, about establishing Jesus's authority. Jesus calls out the authorities in the world, the religious elite, and he tells them, no, you're wrong. God has given me the authority to forgive sins. This is a big deal. It's a tension-filled scene. One for Luke that appears to be about establishing Jesus' authority on earth to heal, to teach, to forgive, to restore in every way. Jesus calls out and challenges the religious authority. And he establishes that God is the source of his authority. Luke wants to make clear to the reader that Jesus did not require the approval or the endorsement of the religious authorities of the day. He makes clear that, G- that his authority is nothing like the authorities of this world. Luke makes clear that Jesus' authority comes from God. In fact, he states this right before we see the man and his friends show up in the scene. Luke says that the power of the Lord was on Jesus to heal the sick. Luke is going out of his way to make sure the reader knows this is about who Jesus is, fully God and fully man, here to bring a new kind of authority into the world. See, for Luke, this remarkable story, this remarkable encounter with the man and his friends, with the Pharisees, the religious elite, It's about emphasizing Jesus' power and authority as God here on earth, as a man walking with us, journeying with us. Actually, Luke's gospel emphasizes Jesus' authority more than any of the other gospels. Now, some of us are here this morning, and you hear that this second story or the story inside a story is about authority, and immediately you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And that's because authority is a bit uncomfy. And it is that way because we have seen the authorities in this world misuse, manipulate, and use their authority to control and to cause pain. You're wondering, maybe you have a thousand questions running through your head being like, where's she going with this? 
And that's fair. It's fair because I didn't even want this story to be about authority. Because it's hard to talk about it. Because it's a source of so much pain and brokenness in our world. Because the authorities in the world, they're using their power to control and manipulate and even abuse people. And it's not lost on me that many of us in this room have experienced a misuse of authority and power inside the church to hurt us. So I will not speak lightly about authority or casually about it because there is a reason why we are uncomfortable when we talk about authority. Authority has been about a misuse of power, a misuse of control, used to manipulate and hurt so many. And this is what we see the religious elite do throughout Jesus' ministry as well. Use their authority and their power to push people aside, to oppress people who weren't good enough or who they deemed not whole or perfect enough. Sadly, I don't think our ideas of authority all that different today. But like Jesus did 2,000 years ago in that house, he offers a new way for us to hold and consider true authority. See, Jesus, after he calls out the religious leaders in the room, he challenges them, telling telling them that God has given him the authority to forgive sins here on earth. And almost as if to prove it, he looks at the man and tells the man to get up, take his mat, and go home. Luke makes no mistake to say immediately the man stands up in front of them, takes his mat, and goes home praising God. Immediately. See, after Jesus forgives this man of his sins, he heals him physically. See, Jesus gives the man what he had so longed for, to be restored. Jesus restores this man in every way. This is how Jesus uses his authority on earth. This is how Jesus uses his power, not to control or to manipulate or to force people to do anything or believe something. Jesus uses his authority to forgive, to heal, to make whole, to restore in every way. Jesus uses his authority to liberate those who have been pushed aside, who have been oppressed by the authorities of this world. Jesus uses his authority to set people free. See, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus was in very nature God, but did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. See, Jesus' authority is nothing like the authorities of this world. It's not used to control or to force people to do anything to give orders. No, it's to heal and to liberate, to set people free. In a world that sees authority as the ultimate advantage, Jesus models for us a new way to hold it. Reminds us, where true authority comes from, which is God alone. See, Jesus used his authority and his power to empower others. When Jesus tells this man to get up and take his mat to go home, he uses his authority 
to remind the man of his own inner authority, to empower the man to own his own healing. See, it's the friends of the man who bring him to the feet of Jesus. But Jesus then invites the man to stand up out of his own faith. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't ask anyone in the room to help him stand? Jesus doesn't help him stand. He says, get up, take your mat, go home. I almost see Jesus looking the man in the eyes saying, it's okay, you can do this. Immediately he stands up. This man has an encounter with the ultimate authority, Jesus himself, and he is reminded of who God is and of who God has made him to be. Jesus uses his authority to remind the man of the divine image that dwells within him. It's remarkable that Jesus in his every encounter is reminding people of God's power, of God's image, the very image that each and every one of us is created in. Now, what's interesting about the word authority is when you think about it, where it comes from is the Latin word octor, which means um, originator or creator. It's where we get the word author. This man has an encounter with the author of life and is reminded of who the divine author is and who the author of his life has made him to be. See, this is what happens when we find ourselves at the feet of Jesus. We meet with the author of our lives, the God who created us in his perfect image, her perfect image, We're reminded of who God is and who God created us to be. Hebrews 12.2 tells us, um, urges us actually to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I think this is what the man did when he was laid before Jesus. He fixed his eyes on Jesus and the author and perfecter of his life. And he was forgiven. He was healed, restored in every way. My friends, remarkable things happen at the feet of Jesus. Gosh, so much is shared in just short nine, or short, a nine short verses. There's so much to consider, so much to hold, so many invitations, but every single invitation in these verses leads us back to this place, the feet of Jesus. This story invites us to come and be at the feet of Jesus so that we can experience remarkable things. See, because at the feet of Jesus, the unexpected happens. Our healing and our restoration is more than we could ever imagine it to be. At the feet of Jesus, we are seen, we are accepted, and we are loved. At the feet of Jesus, we are believed in and empowered to live free and wholeheartedly. At the feet of Jesus, we learn about our creator, the author of our lives. More about the divine image that we are created in. We're reminded of the spirit, the divine that dwells in us and empowers us to be a healing presence in the world. My hope and prayer for us today is that we can find ourselves at the feet of Jesus 
where remarkable things can happen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this space, for community that surrounds us. God, I'm grateful that you made us, hardwired us for community and for connection, for relationship. God, I pray that you would help us to cultivate those relationships that we need in order to give ourselves over to this discipline of hope. God, may we find our way to your feet, to a place where remarkable things can happen, where the unexpected can happen, where we are restored in every way, ways that we didn't even know possible. God, may we find our way today to your feet where we can be reminded of who you are and who you have made us to be. And may that allow us to be a healing presence in this world. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.